0: The Chronicles of Clovis by Saki Read by Richard Crowist The Peace of Mousel Barton Crefton Lockyer sat at his ease, an ease alike of body and soul in the little patch of ground, half orchard and half garden, that abutted on the farmyard at Mousel Barton. After the stress and noise of long years of city life, the repose and peace of the Hilbergert homestead struck on his senses with an almost dramatic intensity. Time and space seemed to lose their meaning and their abruptness. The minutes slid away into hours, and the meadows and fallows sloped away into middle distance, softly and imperceptibly. Wild weeds of the hedgerows straggled into the flower-garden, and woolflowers and garden-bushes made counter-raids into farmyard and lane. Sleepy-looking hens and solemn preoccupied ducks were equally at home in yard, orchard or roadway. Nothing seemed to belong definitely to anywhere. Even the gates were not necessarily to be found on their hinges. And over the whole scene brooded the sense of a peace that had almost a quality of magic in it. In the afternoon you felt that it had always been afternoon, and must always remain afternoon. In the twilight you knew that it could never have been anything else but twilight. Crefton Lockyer sat at his ease in the rustic seat beneath an old medlar tree, and decided that here was the life-anchorage that his mind had so fondly pictured, and that latterly his tired and jarred senses had so often pined for he would make a permanent lodging-place among these simple, friendly people, gradually increasing the modest comforts with which he would like to surround himself, but falling in as much as possible with their manner of living. As he slowly matured this resolution in his mind, an elderly woman came hobbling with uncertain gait through the orchard. He recognised her as a member of the farm household— the mother, or possibly the mother-in-law, of Mrs. Spurfield, his present landlady, and hastily formulated some pleasant remark to make to her. She forestalled him. There's a bit of writing chalked up on the door over yonder. What is it? She spoke in a dull, impersonal manner, as though the question had been on her lips for years and had best be got rid of. Her eyes, however, looked impatiently over Crefton's head at the door of a small barn which formed the outpost of a straggling line of farm-buildings. "'Martha Pillerman is an old witch,' was the announcement that met Crefton's inquiring scrutiny, and he hesitated a moment before giving the statement wider publicity. For all he knew to the contrary, it might be Martha herself to whom he was speaking. It was possible that Mrs. Spurfield's maiden name had been Pillerman, and the gaunt, withered old dame at his side might certainly fulfil local conditions as to the outward aspect of a witch. "'It's something about someone called Martha Pillerman,' he explained cautiously." "'What does it say?' "'It's very disrespectful,' said Crefton. "'It says she's a witch. "'Such things ought not to be written up.' "'It's true, every word of it,' said his listener with considerable satisfaction, "'adding as a special descriptive note of her own, the old toad. "'And as she hobbled away through the farmyard, "'she shrilled out in her cracked voice, "'Martha Pillerman is an old witch.' "'Did you hear what she said?' mumbled a weak, angry voice somewhere behind Crefton's shoulder. Turning hastily, he beheld another old crone, thin and yellow and wrinkled, and evidently in a high state of displeasure. Obviously this was Martha Pillerman in person. The orchard seemed to be a favourite promenade for the aged women of the neighbourhood. "'Tis lies, tis sinful lies,' the weak voice went on. "'Tis Betsy Crute is the old witch, she and her daughter the dirty rat. I'll put a spell on them, the old nuisances.' As she limped slowly away, her eye caught the chalk inscription on the barn door. "'What's written up there?' she demanded, wheeling round on Crefton. "'Vote for Sorker," he responded, with the craven boldness of the practised peacemaker. The old woman grunted, and her mutterings and her faded red shawl lost themselves gradually among the tree-trunks. Crefton rose presently and made his way towards the farmhouse." "'somehow a good deal of the peace seemed to have slipped out of the atmosphere. "'The cheery bustle of tea-time in the old farm-kitchen, "'which Crefton had found so agreeable on previous afternoons, "'seemed to have soured to-day into a certain uneasy melancholy. "'There was a dull, dragging silence around the board, "'and the tea itself, when Crefton came to taste it, "'was a flat, lukewarm concoction "'that would have driven the spirit of revelry out of a carnival.' It's no use complaining of the tea, said Mrs. Spurfield hastily, as her guest stared with an air of polite inquiry at his cup. The kettle won't boil, that's the truth of it. Crefton turned to the hearth, where an unusually fierce fire was banked up under a big black kettle, which sent a thin wreath of steam from its spout, but seemed otherwise to ignore the action of the roaring blaze beneath it. It's been there more than an hour, and boil it won't, said Mrs. Spurfield, adding by way of complete explanation, We're bewitched. It's Martha Pillerman as has done it, chimed in the old mother. I'll be even with the old toad. I'll put a spell on her. It must boil in time, protested Crefton, ignoring the suggestions of foul influences. Perhaps the coal is damp. It won't boil in time for supper, nor for breakfast tomorrow morning, not if you was to keep the fire going all night for it, said Mrs. Spurfield. And it didn't. The household subsisted on fried and baked dishes, and a neighbour obligingly brewed tea and sent it across in a moderately warm condition. "'I suppose you'll be leaving us now that things has turned up uncomfortable,' Mrs. Spurfield observed at breakfast. "'There are folks as deserts one as soon as trouble comes.' Crefton hastily disclaimed any immediate change of plans. He observed, however, to himself that the earlier heartiness of manner had in a large measure deserted the household. Suspicious looks, sullen silences or sharp speeches had become the order of the day. As for the old mother, she sat about the kitchen or garden all day, murmuring threats and spells against Martha Pillerman. There was something alike terrifying and piteous in the spectacle of these frail old morsels of humanity, consecrating their last flickering energies to the task of making each other wretched— Hatred seemed to be the one faculty which had survived in undiminished vigour and intensity where all else was dropping into ordered and symmetrical decay. And the uncanny part of it was that some horrid unwholesome power seemed to be distilled from their spite and their cursings. No amount of sceptical explanation could remove the undoubted fact that neither kettle nor saucepan would come to boiling point over the hottest fire— Crefton clung as long as possible to the theory of some defect in the coals, but a wood-fire gave the same result, and when a small spirit-lamp kettle, which he had ordered out by carrier, showed the same obstinate refusal to allow its contents to boil, he felt that he had come suddenly into contact with some unguessed-at and very evil aspect of hidden forces. Miles away, down through an opening in the hills, he could catch glimpses of a road where motor-cars sometimes passed, and yet here, so little removed from the arteries of the latest civilization, was a bat-haunted old homestead, where something unmistakably like witchcraft seemed to hold a very practical sway. Passing out through the farm garden on his way to the lanes beyond, where he hoped to recapture the comfortable sense of peacefulness that was so lacking around house and hearth, especially hearth, Crefton came across the old mother, sitting mumbling to herself in the seat beneath the medlar-tree. let sink as swims, let sink as swims,' she was repeating over and over again, as a child repeats a half-learned lesson, and now and then she would break off into a shrill laugh, with a note of malice in it that was not pleasant to hear. Crefton was glad when he found himself out of earshot, in the quiet and seclusion of the deep overgrown lanes that seemed to lead away to nowhere.' One, narrower and deeper than the rest, attracted his footsteps, and he was almost annoyed when he found that it really did act as a miniature roadway to a human dwelling. A forlorn-looking cottage with a scrap of ill-tended cabbage garden and a few aged apple-trees stood at an angle where a swift-flowing stream widened out for a space into a decent-sized pond before hurrying away again through the willows that had checked its course. Crefton leaned against a tree-trunk and looked across the swirling eddies of the pond at the humble little homestead opposite him. The only sign of life came from a small procession of dingy-looking ducks that marched in single file down to the water's edge. There is always something rather taking in the way a duck changes itself in an instant from a slow, clumsy waddler of the earth to a graceful, buoyant swimmer of the waters, and Crefton waited with a certain arrested attention to watch the leader of the file launch itself onto the surface of the pond. He was aware at the same time of a curious warning instinct that something strange and unpleasant was about to happen. The duck flung itself confidently forward into the water and rolled immediately under the surface. Its head appeared for a moment and went under again, leaving a trail of bubbles in its wake, while wings and legs churned the water in a helpless swirl of flapping and kicking. The bird was obviously drowning. Crefton thought at first that it had caught itself in some weeds or was being attacked from below by a pike or water-rat but no blood floated to the surface, and the wildly bobbing body made the circuit of the pond current without hindrance from any entanglement. A second duck had by this time launched itself into the pond, and a second struggling body rolled and twisted under the surface. There was something peculiarly piteous in the sight of the gasping beaks that showed now and again above the water, as though in terrified protest at this treachery of a trusted and familiar element." Crefton gazed with something like horror "'as a third duck poised itself on the bank "'and splashed in to share the fate of the other two. "'He felt almost relieved when the remainder of the flock, "'taking tardy alarm from the commotion "'of the slowly drowning bodies, "'drew themselves up with tense, outstretched necks "'and sidled away from the scene of danger, "'quacking a deep note of disquietude as they went. "'At the same moment Crefton became aware "'that he was not the only human witness of the scene.' A bent and withered old woman, whom he recognised at once as Martha Pillerman, of sinister reputation, had limped down the cottage path to the water's edge, and was gazing fixedly at the gruesome whirligig of dying birds that went in horrible procession round the pool. Presently her voice rang out in a shrill note of quavering rage. "'Tis Betsy Crute ha done it, the old rat! I'll put a spell on her, see if I don't—' Crefton slipped quietly away, uncertain whether or no the old woman had noticed his presence. Even before she had proclaimed the guiltiness of Betsy Croote. the latter's muttered incantation, let sink as swims, had flashed uncomfortably across his mind. But it was the final threat of a retaliatory spell which crowded his mind with a misgiving to the exclusion of all other thoughts or fancies. His reasoning powers could no longer afford to dismiss these old wives' threats as empty bickerings— The household at Mousel Barton lay under the displeasure of a vindictive old woman, who seemed able to materialise her personal spites in a very practical fashion, and there was no saying what form her revenge for three drowned ducks might not take. As a member of the household, Crafton might find himself involved in some general and highly disagreeable visitation of Martha Pillamon's wrath. Of course, he knew that he was giving way to absurd fancies, but the behaviour of the spirit lamp kettle and the subsequent scene at the pond had considerably unnerved him. And the vagueness of his alarm added to its terrors, when once you have taken the impossible into your calculations, its possibilities become practically limitless. Crefton rose at his usual early hour the next morning after one of the least restful nights he had spent at the farm. His sharpened senses quickly detected that subtle atmosphere of things being not altogether well that hangs over a stricken household. The cows had been milked, but they stood huddled about in the yard, waiting impatiently to be driven out of field, and the poultry kept up an importunate, querulous reminder of deferred feeding time. The yard pump, which usually made discordant music at frequent intervals during the early morning, was to-day ominously silent." "'In the house itself there was a coming and going of scuttering footsteps, "'a rushing and dying away of hurried voices, and long, uneasy stillnesses. Crefton finished his dressing and made his way to the head of a narrow staircase. "'He could hear a dull, complaining voice, "'a voice into which an awed hush had crept, "'and recognised the speaker as Mrs. Spurfield. "'He'll go away for sure,' the voice was saying. "'There are those as runs away from one as soon as real misfortune shows itself.' Crefton felt that he probably was one of those, and that there were moments when it was advisable to be true to type. He crept back to his room, collected and packed his few belongings, placed the money due for his lodgings on a table, and made his way out by a back door into the yard. A mob of poultry surged expectantly towards him. Shaking off their interested attentions, he hurried along under cover of cow-stall, piggery, and hayricks till he reached the lane at the back of the farm. A few minutes' walk, which only the burden of his portmanteau restrained from developing into an undisguised run, brought him to a main road, where the early carrier soon overtook him and sped him onward to the neighbouring town. At a bend of the road he caught a last glimpse of the farm, the old gabled roofs and thatched barns, the straggling orchard, and the medlar-tree, with its wooden seat, stood out with an almost spectral clearness in the early morning light, and over it all brooded that air of magic possession, which Crefton had once mistaken for peace. The bustle and roar of Paddington Station smote on his ears with a welcome, protective greeting. "'Very bad for our nerves, all this rush and hurry,' said a fellow traveller. "'Give me the peace and quiet of the country.' Crefton mentally surrendered his share of the desired commodity. A crowded, brilliantly over lighted music hall where an exuberant rendering of 1812 was being given by a strenuous orchestra came nearest to his ideal of a nerve sedative. <music>